The following program is being brought to you on the Voice America Business Channel. For more information about our network and to check our additional show hosts and topics of interest, please visit voiceamericabusiness.com. The Voice America Talk Radio Network is the worldwide leader in live Internet talk radio. Visit voiceamerica.com. The views and ideas expressed on the following program are strictly those of the host or guests and do not necessarily reflect the views and ideas held by the Voice America Talk Radio Network, its staff, and management. Good morning, and thank you for joining host Cheryl Esposito for an intriguing hour of Leading Conversations. Each week, Cheryl brings together big thinkers to the Voice America Business Channel. Now here's your host, Cheryl Esposito. Well, good morning, everyone, and welcome to Leading Conversations. This is Cheryl Esposito. Today, I have a very special guest, my friend John Renich, who I have known for many years, and I have seen him become so passionate, even more than he used to be, about our world and where we are going and what is possible for the future of the planet of the generations to come, and of our global possibilities. John is an advisor to businesses globally. He is a mentor. He is called a futurist. He is what I would call a social activist because he really truly believes in social and organizational transformation. John, welcome back to Leading Conversations. Thank you, Cheryl. Glad to be here. It's so great to have you here. Where are you today? I'm in San Francisco at my home, looking out over San Francisco Bay and the ferry boats going back and forth, and it's a beautiful sunny day. Oh, nice. It is a gorgeous day. So, John, let's just jump right in. So, you know, I have known you as somebody who is a real... Um, tell it like it is, person. You are someone who believes that as a collective, we as a, we as humanity really aren't taking responsibility for what we are doing unconsciously. And what we are doing unconsciously is creating the future. But somehow we have missed that point. Tell me why you started see this, when you started to see this, and what made it important to you? Mm. Oh, good questions. Um, I'll go with the when part. I think I started to see this in the late 70s or early 80s when I was in the midst of some kind of human potential workshop. It was around organizations and how effective they are. And I, it dawned on me that human beings could be doing a lot better than we are doing. Uh, and it seemed like that there was a market for some help in that direction. Mm-hmm. Um, so it, it was just seeing that human potential was lacking as a collective in our species, uh, that what we regarded as exceptional or heroic or really great was not not really great. It was just better than the norm, a slight by mm-hmm. slight amount. So I saw that we could be doing better, and that 
has since moved. You mentioned that my passion has gotten greater. I hadn't actually realized that, so thank you for the feedback. But if my passion has gotten more fervent, it's probably because not only could we be, could we be doing better, if we want to survive, we better start doing a lot better. So the urgency you know, for me has gone up a lot in the last decade. So when you say if we are to survive, are you talking about humanity or are you talking about planetary survival? What, what is it you mean? No, I think, I think Mother Earth is going to be fine. Uh, at some point she'll say, this is enough abuse, get out of here. And <laughs> we, 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 it will not be fit for our survival. But Mother yeah. Earth will be fine, and she'll come back like she does always, and so forth. Uh, at least, right. at least she'll be around another several billion years. But we may have we may have e- eliminated the ability of the planet to support human life as we know it. Mm. So I, I'd say the, the 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 danger of extinction is in the human race, not so much in the in the planet. When people say they're saving the planet, they're not talking about saving the planet. The planet's going to be fine. They're saving their own butts. Right, right, right. So, and, and, so, I, and I have a preference. I have a strong, you know, I, I, don't, I don't really know if we're going to do this or not. If we're going to make right. it, if we're going to survive, I have a strong preference myself uh, that we do. But it's just a preference. Why? Why does that matter to you? Because I am one. <laughs> I'm, I'm, a, I'm a people. <laughs> I'm a people. And like I say, whenever we have somebody that's underperforming, I always like to see them doing better than they're doing. And we're not doing very well. And I'd like to see us uh, optimizing our, our way of relating to one another and relating to our planet, to our home, to our living room. Well, one of the things I know that you say is that... Um, you know, as a collective, we need to make these choices and we need to make these choices better and with more intention. But you also say, well, yes, we need to do that as a collective, and it starts with each one of us individually. So as you look at that and you consider that from your own perspective, how do you think you have changed the way you live in order to affect the collective consciousness. Hmm. Well, we all have our our unique way of contributing to the better the betterment of mankind or humankind. Mm-hmm. My in my case I open my mouth and I shout a lot or I write a lot. So my, my contribution is through my word, through the written word, through my blogs, through my speaking, etc. Other people, it's through their actions and the kind of businesses they start and the kind of businesses they support. I'm now starting a business also uh, called Future Shapers would do something besides just writing and speaking about the future and what we could be doing differently. So I'm, I'm adding to my front, you might say, besides just being a theorist or a shouting from the rooftops type of guy, I'm also getting into action as far as starting a business. Hopefully we'll make a, be- a better contribution to the world. Well, tell us about Future Shapers. The idea of Future Shapers is to initially to form executive peer groups, which have been around since the 1950s, 
Uh, it's a proven model for people to getting people that are peers of one another to be in a kind of a mastermind group, think out their problems together and their solutions together, become better managers, basically. So companies that have members in executive peer groups typically outperform companies that don't have members in executives and executive peer groups. So it's a proven for improving performance, and I put that in italics. Uh, about 15 or 16 years ago, I got the idea of talking to a, member, a person who was a member of a Vistage group. They, or they, they then called them Tech Groups, TEC, which stands for the original executive committee. That was what they originally called them. Yeah. And he was a member of an L.A. group, and, and the word had come down from headquarters in San Diego that they were to cut out the soft stuff. They were getting into areas like consciousness and spirit and spirituality and all that. And they were saying, no, let's stick to the pragmatic business. We don't want you doing that soft stuff stuff. And he said, you know, quite frankly, I may, the soft stuff is what I like. That's, that's the stuff mm-hmm. I really go there for, and I may not renew my membership. So that's where the idea got, came from a number of years ago. And I kept looking for a partner or partners to have in this business. And I went through about six or seven generations of talking to different people about being my partner. And finally, about five years ago, I met a man named Tom Eddington. And not only was he a good candidate for this, but he had also run a couple of groups of people he coached. Mm-hmm. And I've since gotten to know Tom quite well. We'd be partners and we started Future Shapers. We actually incorporated about two and a half years ago. And the, the initial product that we're offering is to put executives together who are peers of one another, come together to form a group, not necessarily to become just better managers or better CEOs or better at what they do, but they all aspire to become more conscious, to be better mm-hmm. conscious leaders. And we, the material we cover in the curriculum includes consciousness, the role of ego, getting out of ego, uh, systems thinking, because that's the, that's the world we live in today. We live in a world of complex systems, yet most of us are ignorant about systems thinking. So we, we have some curriculum content, but largely it's a peer group with a coach or a host that runs the group and services the theme of the group. Uh, and they make a commitment for one year to be together for one year and they share their aspirations with the group of where they want to be in terms of their own idea of where they want to grow in consciousness over that 12 period. Mm-hmm. And we've since added a team of consciousness coaches. We have nine of us that uh, market ourselves out as consciousness coaches, um, five men and six, four women. So we're also offering conscious coaching sessions with people, individual people. Mm-hmm. So that's what Future Shapers is up to, and we're going to start offering some public events here in the fall here in San Francisco Bay Area where we interview people from that are from private and, and public sector that we consider conscious leaders. And so we're actually getting into talking to people that we think are exemplars of the kind of consciousness we're talking about. Because from where I, where I stand, the biggest crisis in the world isn't global climate change. It isn't Amazon rainforest. It isn't, it isn't all the things we read about. The biggest crisis we have is a crisis of leadership. Mm. And that's where the crisis is. And there's billions of dollars, billions of dollars, tens of billions of dollars, 
spent every year trying to bring leadership into organizations and spend on leadership mm-hmm. development. And yet, over 95% of the people that are approving that, those expenditures are saying they're not very effective. Yet we keep doing it. So we, there, there's a need for leadership. Otherwise, people wouldn't be spending billions of dollars on doing it on, and trying to get better leaders, but they're also failing in 97% of the cases. So there's something but wrong then, with that. Do you think that... Do you think that um people really know what they mean when they say we want better leaders? Um, Well, based on what I just reported, I'd say probably not. Yeah. But if you ask people, and I've done this a lot in in speeches, if I ask an audience, um, are we leading any better than we were? You know, are we, do we have any better leaders now than we did 10 years ago? And you watch the heads, and they're all shaking their heads. You don't listen to what they say. You listen to how their heads nod. People know we have a crisis in leadership. They just haven't spent a lot of time sitting around talking about it. But if you look at what they do, what the system does, I'll call it a system, is they have a bunch of vendors that, that sell trainings to corporations that are approved and that have done this before, and they get the contracts to do the leadership development work. Very few companies will stick their neck out and try something really radical, like something that might transform mm-hmm. the individual, which is what it takes. Right. So you just give them more data points. You give them more book learning. You give them more mm-hmm. labels of a model so they get more hip about how to talk about a model or the flavor of the month on leadership or the, the proper adjective or whatever. But there's no change inside of them. They're still the same... Uh, individual in terms of lacking the chutzpah to be a really, really good leader. So they may learn a little better language. They may learn the name of another author, another expert, but they're not changing their DNA. They're not becoming more courageous. There was a study out that never was. There were two consultants, friends of mine, that did this survey, and they asked me to help them write a book. And they ended up pulling out of our deal, but they never did write the book, unfortunately. But they surveyed 400 managers on three continents. And they asked the managers what kind of leaders they admired. And they ran, the the list was pretty much the same people, Winston Churchill, Nelson Mandela, Mother Teresa, etc. And then they asked them, what about about those people, what traits do they admire? And they, they were all pretty much the same traits, including, you know, the... Uh, the courage to speak when they saw something that needed writing, needed to be righted. Um, and then they said, how are you measuring up those traits? If you aspire to those traits, how are you measuring up to those? And to a person, they said, not at all. Mm-hmm. They found that quite curious, so they said, well, why do you think not? And the answer wasn't consistently the same amongst all 400 people, but generally it could be paraphrased as, I was doing what I thought the organization wanted from me. Hmm. And they weren't doing what the organization told them they wanted from me. They were doing what the orga- they thought the organization wanted from me. And I, I, my language, my translation of that is they were going along to get along. So they would look yeah. sacrificing their aspirations. They were sacrificing their own desires to be a good leader therefore belittling themselves or selling a little of their soul, you might say, in order mm-hmm. to keep the peace, to keep quiet, to not make any waves, etc. 
And we, the only way to get past that that I can see is that you have to have some kind of DNA-changing, world-changing, gut-changing, transformative experience that pops you out of where you are into a different whole worldview about things. Mm-hmm. And that, that's, that, those are very, there are some consulting firms and training firms that offer that. I know a couple of them. But most of the people that are cleared to be as vendors for companies that get these multi-million dollar contracts to, to sell mm-hmm. leadership development services to corporations don't sell that. They sell the conventional stuff, which is book learning, basically. Yeah, I, I'm right with you. You know that I'm a kindred spirit here, and I have always believed that you know there's a place for learning techniques. There's a place for understanding the concepts of communication and project management, etc. And that's not what leadership is about. Yeah. And so, you know, I'm very fortunate in my career as an executive coach that the work I do is very deep and transformative. But you say not all organizations are willing to put their money on the line for that. And what is the good news is that those of us who have stayed true to that do find those places where they are willing. And not that we are all satisfied with, you know, that's not, you know, we can just do it with those few organizations. But when I know that there are some who are willing to step up, then I know that there are ways get into others. And I love that what you're doing here is that you're creating an option that is actually, you know, it's a bit controversial, and yet I have a feeling that organizations are going to pay attention to this a little differently. It's almost as if the time is right for them to hear something different. Would you agree with that? Mm-hmm. Absolutely. And here in the Bay Area, we are particularly blessed to have a significant number of organizations uh, getting really into the mindfulness idea, which is I, I, one of our uh, kissing cousins, I guess you could say, for consciousness. So with right. an interest in mindfulness, there's there's a yearning for something largely promoted, I think, by overwork <laughs> and stress <laughs> because the, the way people basically initially sell mindfulness or meditation is it relieves stress. They don't say it may, makes right. you more conscious. They say it relieves stress. Okay, we got right. a bunch of stressed out people now, so let's relieve that stress. Mm-hmm. But mindfulness leads, it's, it's like from mindfulness you get to learning more about who you are, and as you learn more about who you are, you become more self-aware you're getting closer and closer to that top part of the Maslow hierarchy called self-transcendence. And as you reach that, you get to a level of saying, wait a minute, I've been doing this for X number of years. I'm pretty good at what I do. How come I'm not, you know, feeling better, feeling better about myself? How come I'm working so hard? All these questions come up. And while the average person probably never uses the word consciousness in their vocabulary even once, um, we're still learning the language and how to bridge to that, that yearning for something of people that are starting mm-hmm. to, um, I, I don't mean this pejoratively, but starting to wake up to that part of themselves that isn't being as satisfied as they thought they were. 
And they're saying there's right. got to be something. There's got to be something more to uh, mm-hmm. what I'm doing in in work and the way I'm working and the way I'm leading and the way I'm relating to people. There's got to be something way better than to do this and be willing to. Well, I absolutely agree with you. I absolutely agree, and I I think that we're going to have a challenge with this newer generation coming in because they're starting out that way. They're not waiting until they get burned out. So we're going to take a break. When we come back, John, I want to talk to you about how you see this next generation um, of people who are truly future shapers, how they are going to show up in our world. We'll be right back. America Business Network, the bottom line in business. Leadership is not static. It evolves as you do. At Alexa Consulting, we work with CEOs, senior leaders, and leaders in transition who want to make a difference. Leaders who believe that good business is good for people, good for the world, and knows that conscious actions can have global impact. Are you ready to take your leadership to the next level? If you are, then visit our website at www.alexaconsulting.com. That's www.alexsaconsulting.com. Alexa Consulting, developing leaders worldwide. Does your organization lack proper leadership? We're not necessarily talking about experience, but about how to face the changing dynamic of leadership today. Sometimes the people we lead know more, old ways don't work anymore, and the comfort zone just becomes too easy. Listen for Out of the Comfort Zone with Dr. Wanda Wallace. We'll show you how you can adapt and develop your leadership skills to today's workplace every Friday at 2 p.m. Eastern Time, 11 a.m. Pacific Time on Voice America Business. Tune in to the soul of enterprise, business in the knowledge economy with co-hosts Ron Baker and Ed Klass. Ron and Ed will show you how to recognize that wealth is created by intellectual capital. It's all in the possibilities that we can create and that are created for us. These possibilities are destined to be discovered by human imagination and through the service of others, creating a brighter future for all of us. The Soul of Enterprise is heard live every Friday at 1 p.m. Pacific Time, 4 p.m. Eastern, on the Voice America Business Channel. We're making it easier to listen to the Voice America Talk Radio Network live wherever you go on iPhone, BlackBerry, or Android. Download it from the Apple iTunes App Store, BlackBerry App World, or Android Market. We appreciate you joining our leading conversations today. If you would like to participate in today's conversation, please call us now at 1-866-472-5790. That's 1-866-472-5790. Now back to your host, Cheryl. Welcome back to Leading Conversations. This is Cheryl Escobedo with my very special guest, John Rennich, who is the author of The Great Growing Up, being responsible for humanity's future, which actually was awarded the 2013 Grand Prize for Nonfiction by Next Generation Indie Book Awards. John, that's a really good read. I love that book. So, you know, I, I mentioned in the last segment that I'm curious about the new generation of people coming into the workforce and 
these people, you know, as future shapers, um, having a really different sense of what they want out of life and what work really is. What, what do you? What is your perspective on what's going mm-hmm. on with this generation? Well, I, I get asked a lot what, how I think the world is going, and if you look at if you look at the world from a systems perspective, which is what gets most of the press and the media attention these days, things are pretty grim. Uh, I can't think of any human-made system, any social system that isn't in some stage of collapse right now. So if, based on that, I'd say it, it, things are pretty bad. But if you look at individuals and and the consciousness being displayed by individuals, there's a whole lot of waking up going on in the world. And that's very exciting. And that's where the change is going to come from anyway. Um, for the last, for most of the last cent- three decades, <laughs> not three centuries, for the last, much of the last three decades, I have been aware that I have been part of a community of people, to me, probably in the hundreds, maybe even a, thousand, a couple of thousand, and it's pretty much been a guild of people. I'm going to call it a guild. So I don't know what else to call it, but it's a set number of people that. Some die off every once in a while, and some new ones come in, but it was pretty much a set population in terms of my awareness of who they were until about four years ago when I got Google Alerts, and I put the term leadership into Google Alerts. And at that time, I'd get a hit uh, two or three times a month. And then it started picking up more and more exponentially. And now I'll get two or three a day, and each of the two or three a day I get has two or three or four in them, in each email. And what I've done, started doing a couple of years ago, is reaching out. If there was someone who was truly talking about conscious leadership, and I didn't know who they were, I'd reach out and set up a Skype call or a phone call with them. And I have met hundreds of new people that I didn't know were doing this before, quite frankly doing it before, that are much younger uh, thank God, because this guild is getting pretty up, up there in age. Uh, and they're very new to the game, and they're coming on the scene like gangbusters. Uh, mm-hmm. And they're a, they're a generation or two below me, which is very encouraging, because my generation is going to be pretty well gone soon. So it's really encouraging to see the passion that they're bringing into this and the numbers of them, I and mean, occasionally the, the Google Alerts doesn't recognize that the word conscious and the word leadership might just end up in the same sentence together accidentally. But how many of these people are really talking about conscious leadership? There, for instance, last year I found a conference, a summit on conscious leadership in, in um, Zimbabwe, of all places. I mean, they're all... all Whoa. Uh, people are starting to say that, you know, so the, I'm not saying the, the phrase is just catching on. I think that's a big part of it. But hopefully it leads actually to people becoming more conscious as leaders and becoming more willing to lead even if they aren't in a position or don't hold the title of leader. But they mm-hmm. see something that needs to be rectified, and they jump in and rectify it. Mm-hmm. So I'm very excited about the younger generation. Uh, I'd like to be, have more exposure to them than I do. But so far, I'm content to have exposure through virtual contact with them through uh, the various visual uh, media we have available to us right now, like Zoom and Skype and so forth. Mm. You know, there, 
Warren Bennis, who was a real expert in leadership and has passed, but he's an expert in leadership and an author, and he was a professor at USC um, in the School of Business, and he's called you a wise elder who shines with wisdom. And I remember many years ago, you and I sitting at lunch, having a conversation about elder and Mm. having this laugh over when did I become the elder and kind of laughing about, you know, both of us had had this experience of always kind of being the younger one, always on the tail end of, you know, what was happening and suddenly people were turning to you as an elder saying, you have so much wisdom to give. That transition into elderhood, that owning of elderhood, is something that fascinates me. And, you know, because we have a society, especially in the West, that doesn't really honor elders, doesn't really honor the contribution that's possible, um, I'm wondering how you see that fitting into you know, kind of where the world is going. What's your thought? Hmm. Interestingly, Warren said that about me uh, 25 years ago. Oh. And it's it, it's only been in the last 10 or 15 that I've probably allowed myself to think of myself as an elder. And people yeah. close to me have... have um, have shared that struggle with me. I'm now there. I'm, you know, my age. Mm. First of all, I can't. I can't deny my age, which says I'm an elder. Um, <laughs> but also, there there was a process of owning el- your own eldership. Yeah. And at first, there was this "aw shucks, I'm not one of them." Duh, you know, this false modesty thing. And at some point in time, you got that you were being perceived by people as somebody with a lot of experience and da-da-da-da-da. So you're being perceived by an elder, so you better own it. Otherwise, you're being right. two-faced. Uh, but it was... It, 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 I haven't really talked about that process, but it was uncomfortable. It mm-hmm. might be the opposite of moving from puberty into adulthood. It might be kind of the opposite process, because it's, unco- it's equally uncomfortable for me. It was for me, anyway. Uh, and yes, you, in our in our industrialized culture, we tend to discard the elderly, um, throw out the elders with the bathwater, so to speak. Mm-hmm. But mm-hmm. there's a, a lot of wisdom that we're finally starting to realize. There's a lot of wisdom laying on the table in in ancient wisdom, and in the indigenous uh, cultures of the world, mm-hmm. and they they really honor the elderly and the the elders, uh, as they as one. One reference has made it is the elders are our libraries. Hmm. Uh, that's where, that's where we go to learn. Um, so I think there's a, there's a growing appreciation in the world for what elders can offer, but there's still in the Western world, the Western industrialized world, there's still a tendency to um, see through them. Uh, it's something we do. I just was talking to somebody the other day. 
as you as I get older, it's interesting to see how people look right past me. Yeah. Uh, when I was younger, girls were looking at me differently, <laughs> and you, know, you, you have a certain profile, you carry yourself a certain way, and as yeah. you get older, your bodies change and all that, and people just, you're, you're more, less and less visible to people, mm-hmm. um, and, and that's just part of living in the Western culture, I think. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, I a think lot that's of, true, and so I wonder then how we... In this age where, um, I, I thought it was interesting, you said the elders are our libraries, I wonder how many of the young generation, of the generation of the 20-somethings, you know, even the teens, how many of them actually spend time in any kind of library when they can get anything they want on their computer, you know, or on their, their device, you know. It's, it's, they don't need to go to a library to pull books off the shelf. And, you know, I, I wonder how that is shifting all of this. I, I don't know. I don't think I can answer that because I'm not one of those. I'm, uh, I forget the phrase, but there's a phrase where you, where you had to convert to the virtual and there's yeah. a phrase where you were born into the virtual, and I forget the, the distinctions, but they were cute words they right. give to each of those. Uh, right. I wasn't born in. I'm, I'm a convert, and, and maybe even yeah. a begrudging convert still to some mm-hmm. degree. But uh, right. I, think, I think that's a question to ask a, a 20-something-year-old, because um, st- they, the information they can still get, is, maybe it's not in a building called the library, but between Google and Wikipedia and all that, they still can get the information. But whether they value information from someone who's been around, you know, from the 19th century or 20th century, if they value that as much as they do somebody that's a a contemporary of theirs. Because one Mm -hmm. of the things that you learn as you get older is there's there's fewer and fewer things that are ever said that are brand new. Sure. You know, the ancient Greeks were saying stuff that we now think of, a, wow, wasn't that wise? Yeah, and that was 3,000 years ago they were talking about that stuff. Um, and we're still thinking it's wisdom, and it is. It's just repackaged to some extent. Sure. So I, I don't know. I don't know the uh, how the 20-something, the person that was brought up on technology, um, how they view eldership. That would be a good study for somebody to do. Right. Well, yes, yeah, so and those those digital natives, as they're called. Ah, um, oh, there you go. There you go. Thank it, you. it seems like they actually came out of the womb, you know, with a digital device in their hands. Um, but they, it is fascinating to me how how easy it is, and that's how they process information, and that's their first way of engaging and communicating, and being someone who is, you know, pretty facile with all this stuff, all this digital stuff, and yet grew up at a time when it didn't exist um, and really do value the, the nuance of sitting across the table from someone whose face I can see and not just looking at the face on a screen, but actually being in the presence of that person and 
how much do we lose when we don't have the opportunity to ever do that? And I, I, you know, I don't know the answer and I don't know if it even, maybe it won't matter. Maybe I'm concerned about something that will be a non-issue, but it is something that I wonder about a lot. And when I coach, when I coach with people, and of course we do it face-to-face most of the time, a lot of times on the phone, you know, via Skype, et cetera, but most of the time where I see huge breakthrough, it's when we are face-to-face. And so there must be something to that, energetic or something that goes on there. Well, in my view, Cheryl, the um, I, one of my private campaigns right now is is really looking for people that agree with me that the brain and the mind are not synonymous. And so much Ooh. of people that write books like The Conscious Mind, Chalmers' book, I just read his book, and all these people, they, they seem to equate the brain and, and mind together, and I just, I just know that's not so. So it's kind of forcing me into looking for people to think a little bit more like I do, which is the mind is, is I mean, we've got 30 to 40 trillion cells in everybody in our bodies, and, and all those cells are talking to each other. That's, that's part of the mind as far as I'm concerned. So mm-hmm. it's not just in the brain. It's, it's the whole body is, is mind. And then there's the field, the, elect, the, elect, the electromagnetic field around your body and how it is to be with somebody and, and the energy you get from them and their body. And that's all yeah. mind. And, and when you're with, say, a, a very enlightened master or a spiritual teacher and you suddenly are in tears and don't even know why, yeah, uh, yeah. You, can't, you can't deny the palpable nature of being in somebody's field and somebody's presence. Right. And they haven't right. they haven't managed to get that into a hologram or onto a screen yet, and mm-hmm. that's that's the dimension of being with someone, being in a relationship that you, that's missing from the virtual world. Mm-hmm. Uh, maybe it'll be there someday. Maybe we'll have, you know, the uh, beam me up, Scotty kind of thing that where we can actually be in the field of of somebody like that mm-hmm. at some point. I don't doubt there's somebody's probably trying that right now to create that. Yeah. But without that, we're, we're missing a dimension of relatedness. We're missing a dimension of wisdom sharing. Um, mm. And if we think the, the little bit we're getting is the whole thing, then, we're, then we're, we're discounting what it means to be uh, in relationship. Mm. It would be interesting to have a, um, a roundtable with the different generations in and have this conversation. You know, it would be really, um, it would be a beautiful inquiry to, to really sit and listen to one another, to be able to learn from one another, and um, as well as seek to be understood, right? You know, I, we should do something about that, John. <laughs> I, was, so, I was the... A year or so ago, maybe maybe two years ago, I was on the phone with a colleague of mine who works at the Exploratorium here in San Francisco, and she happened to be talking to somebody in her office, and they were looking for some older people to be part of a 
conversation that evening at the Exploratorium on love. Okay. And they had a lot of young people, but they were looking for some people who were long in the tooth, I think was the phrase she used. So I agreed, I volunteered to go down to the Exploratorium that evening and, and be in this circle of 20 or 30 people surrounded by several hundred people listening uh, to talk about love. And I was never more aware of being out of generational contact. <laughs> uh, mm. I was talking about love as um, unconditional acceptance of another person. Mm. That was my definition for love. And so all my context for talking about love was around that. Everybody else, to a person, it was about sex and romance. Wow. And, you know, there are lots of times when I've been very excited and enthused and inspired by younger generations. Uh, in this case, I felt just really odd, like an oddball out. Because love equaled sex and romance as far as that audience was concerned. Right. And when I said something, when I said something, the eyes just rolled and they were on to the next per- person to speak. Wow. That's really fascinating. So that, I, I, I would say there's, I, I know a number of people that are doing intergenerational work, but I think there's, we could be doing a lot more of it, uh, just recognizing yeah. the value that each generation has to offer, to offer the, other gen, the other generations, yeah. both ab- yeah. above and below. Right. right. Fascinating. Well, I, you know, I think it you know, goes both ways, right? It's, um, you know, I remember growing up and hearing my parents and their generation talk about, you know, those dratted kids and, you know, how they don't know anything and, you know, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. And so I'm always conscious in my head of making sure I don't sound like my mother. (laughs) (laughs) The thought runs across my brain where I hear the voice of that, you know, as when I was a little kid with an older person who would say, Oh, those kids don't know anything, you know. I used to say to myself, now, do not go there. Now, there's something of value here, so don't judge before you learn what's going on. And so I try really hard to do that, but I know that between generations, um, there... Between generations, there is just this sense of we don't need to pay attention to one another, right? And if the if a generation that's older than a young generation feels completely responsible for their safety, then I think it would be tough. That must be part of the element that plays into the don't be silly, that's, that's not the right thing to do, you're being crazy, right? I mean, isn't it, is it a safety thing? What do you think? Well, you're, you're talking the parental approach, the older generation, the younger generation. Right, um, right. Um, it, it is more parental protective, I think. And then you look at the younger generation, and of course their parents are stupid, they don't know anything. Uh, because you don't understand the, my priorities, and my priorities are basically all hinging on Friday night date and having the right dress or shoes or hat or shoot, whatever. And I, I'm reminded of the old joke about how your parents get smarter and smarter the older you get. 
Because <laughs> as we grow up, we realize, oh, that was pretty wise of them. We thought they were stupid, and they keep getting smarter as we grow up. Hmm. Well, I know I... Uh, one, one, of the, one, of the joys, one of the joys in life I have missed is not parenting anybody. I haven't parented any ch- children. I never did want any children. But mm-hmm. it's an experience that a lot of people have that I don't. So I don't share that. Mm-hmm. In fact, mm-hmm. I was uh, having a session with my now passed on brother a couple of years ago. And he said, well, you don't have family family, but the human race is your family. And I go... Mm-hmm. Yeah, I could buy that. Mm-hmm. I, I, I really see nice. the human race as my family. Very much. Yeah, I can agree to that. So, you know, we're going we're gonna to run this segment all the way to the end of the show because I, I just don't want to break our conversation here. So, John, you have talked about um, having the will to work for the kind of future I want to see. So, and then you said, you know, that requires a deep dive, and you know, we got to really know, you know, what matters to us, et cetera. Is there more to it than that? And, you know, I mean, is this something that is more than just a conversation with ourselves? I mean, how do you get somebody to understand, number one, the kind of future they even want to see, right? And number two, that they really have a part in playing this and a responsibility for shaping this. Well, the first the first caveat I'll say is is I I haven't been, I haven't been able to change anybody, and and I always get in trouble when I try to change somebody, mm. and that's usually in a close relationship. Um, so what I've learned over the years is I can't change anybody. Only only somebody that wants to change can change themselves. Now, mm-hmm. I, I can create an environment. I can create paper. I can create articles. I can create books. I can create a, a meeting where they might hear me speaking, where it might trigger something in them, but that uh, whether they change or not is up to them. And I, if I said something to help that along, great. But I'm not doing it in order to get them to change. I, I take that back. Sometimes I am. Sometimes I still think <laughs> of that. But part of the great growing up book, uh, the message is that when you commit yourself to being an adult and start taking adult, making this adult, mature adult decisions, it's a little bit like you start cleaning up your room. You don't wait for your parents to tell you to clean up your room. Mm. You start acting responsibly even though... It wasn't your natural thing to do when you were in your adolescence. And we're still adding, mm-hmm. acting like adolescents in the world. And we keep thinking somebody else is going to clean up our room. We keep thinking that mm-hmm. the short term is the, is the whole thing. is you know, in, Instant gratification is the answer, whatever that mm-hmm. happens to be. Uh, we, we break up into little gangs or cliques and hang out with one another, that, the people that agree with us. I mean, everything about yeah. us says we're, we're still acting out of our adolescence. So as mm. we grow up and take responsibility for the planet we have, responsibility for the systems we've created, responsibility for the lifestyles we've created, the degree of consumption that we've tolerated and, and demanded, you might say, yeah. um, you'd say, wait a minute, 
this, this, this has a lot of dire consequences that I wasn't really seeing as an adolescent. I'm now seeing it as an adult. And it's my job to start fixing things, to start cleaning it up. Mm. Now, some people are going to get that in spades and really jump in. Some people are going to get that and go, no, I don't want to go there. I'm going to hang out in mm-hmm. adolescence. As long, as long as the world can tolerate me still acting out in my adolescence, I'm going to stay in adolescence yeah. and not grow up. We all know people yeah. that have never grown up, right? right. We all right. know people that are, are, you know, are 50 years old and still acting like they're a teenager. Mm-hmm. So that's, that's, that's a less than responsible way of being, but that's a way of being. And if you can get by with it and nobody calls mm-hmm. you on it, fine. Well, you know, I, as I look at what's happening in our political system, and I, I look at what, you know, right now, what's happening in the United States around race, and people are standing up and saying, this has to change. We have to acknowledge there's a problem, and then we have to change it. And it's feeling to me like this is a... Um, this is a point that we are actually making a decision as a society. We are deciding, you know, which way are we going to go on this? And I'm feeling encouraged because I'm seeing people who in the past have not made their voice heard and who now are saying, look, this isn't working. We can't do this. You know, and, and I'm, I'm fascinated by this because it's feeling, I mean, as horrific as some of these situations are, it's actually feeling like this is not in vain. There may be something good that comes out of this. Are you, how do you, how do you see what's going on today in, in race in America? Well, before I, before I do that, let me add something. Um, one of the misconceptions uh, is that we don't make any difference. Yeah. Um, so, so what can I do? Is w- one of the ways we talk ourselves out of doing things is, well, I'm only one person. What can I do? Uh, what I do doesn't make... Everybody in the world is making a difference. Everybody. And you have a choice of the kind of difference you make. So that you have a choice of doing something that's socially responsible, um, that's... that where you're, address, you're speaking to the things that you value, you're not staying silent. This is the biggest error. This is the biggest culprit. It's staying silent when things mm-hmm. are going on that you don't approve of, but you're staying silent, therefore you're endorsing them. Uh, and that probably bring, brings, it, brings us to the race conversation. Uh, there's a lot of people that don't do anything to promote racism except they don't object to it. Right. And that, that's, that can be said about unconscious behavior in organizations, dysfunctional behavior mm-hmm. in organizations. Mm-hmm. Uh, but in, racism is where it gets really, really ugly. And mm-hmm. I, I remember years and years ago having a brother who was a bigot. Um, and in one evening conversation with he and a friend, and the racial slurs they were throwing back, and this is, I'm going back to the 70s probably. Mm. Uh, and they were, they were just tossing around the N-word like, you know, it was the weather. And I, had, mm. I excused myself from the table. I just, I couldn't deal with it. 
and uh, I guess I did make a statement because I never got invited to have dinner with him again. But uh, mm-hmm. there's there's times when it's time to say, say something, do something, act, rather than just swallowing and pretending it's not affecting you. It is affecting you. It's affecting everybody when people talk like that. Well, um, and that really uh, speaks to what you have said, that, you know, each person on this planet... You absolutely cannot be a living human being without having some influence on the future. And on that note, John, we've come to the end of our show. Oh. And I know, I know. We could talk forever. <laughs> We're going to have to come back and do part two. Um, yeah, because this is, this is really important. You know, this is, I think we're at a precipice in our journey <laughs> as human beings. So... Your book, The Great Growing Up, Being Responsible for Humanity's Future, is available through your website, Rinich.com, and thegreatgrowingup.org, and Amazon, Amazon etc. And um, I know, John, people want to know more about you, and Rinich.com is your website. Um, well, so thank you for being here. Thank you so much, John, um, and Future Shapers. We want to know more about them, futureshapers.com. So we're going to have you back. We're going to talk to you more in another one of our Leading Conversations episodes. Thanks for being here, John. Thank you, Cheryl, very much. And remember, everyone, to think big. The world can be a better place because of a conversation that matters. This is Cheryl Esposito. Thank you for spending this hour with Cheryl Esposito and Leading Conversations. You can listen live every Friday at 10 a.m. Pacific Standard Time on the Voice America Business Channel. If you have a question or comment for Cheryl, please email her at leadingconversations at alexaconsulting.com. That's L-E-A-D-I-N-G-C-O-N-V-E-R-S-A-T-I-O-N-S at A-L-E-X-S-A-C-O-N-S-U-L-T-I-N-G.com. See you next week. Thanks again for listening to the preceding program brought to you on the Voice America Business Channel. For more information about our network and to check out additional show hosts and topics of interest, please visit voiceamericabusiness.com. The Voice America Talk Radio Network is the worldwide leader in live Internet talk radio. Visit voiceamerica.com. The views and ideas expressed on the preceding program are strictly those of the host or guests and do not necessarily reflect the views and ideas held by the Voice America Talk Radio Network, its staff, and management.